There's a lot to say when buying a new home or car, but only one thing to say that can help you protect them. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, a State Farm agent will be there to help you choose the coverage you need, no matter where you are in life. When you need coverage options, your State Farm agent is there to help, on the phone or in person. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the Nerdist Podcast number 374. I'm performing in Philadelphia uh, this week, June 27th, 28th, and 29th. Handful of tickets left there at Helium. You can go to heliumcomedy.com or nerdist.com slash calendar get information and tickets. And uh, we're really close to being sold out for the Balboa Theater on the Saturday of San Diego Comic-Con. Uh, we have a very special guest that I can't announce yet, but uh, you're going to like it. So that is also at Nerdist.com slash calendar. I'd like to thank for sponsoring this episode of the Nerdist Podcast, Hulu Plus. Of course, you've uh, streamed Hulu on uh, Hulu.com probably a million times. But now, get your free trial of exclusive content in your living room on your mobile devices with Hulu Plus. With Hulu Plus, you get total control to watch thousands of shows wherever you want. You get complete seasons of things, not just the most recent ones. Um, you can uh, watch your current shows. You can watch full series runs of classic TV shows if you want. I mean, it's Community, Modern Family, South Park, SNL, Family Guy, Fallon, New Girl, Parks and Rec. Do you hear people cheering in the background? It's not for what I just said, but let's all pretend it was for what I just said. There's a, and they just laughed because I, I made a joke about it. I'm, I'm not connected to what's going on downstairs. I'm at Nerd Melt right now, and there's people playing D&D just below the podcast studio window. And somehow we're in weird sync. They could probably use Hulu Plus, because right now it is $7.99 a month at HuluPlus.com forward slash Nerdist, all in lowercase. And they're going to extend a free trial of Hulu Plus that is only available to you guys, the podcast listeners. Take control of your TV watching experience. Go to HuluPlus.com forward slash Nerdist for your extended free trial. Again, HuluPlus.com forward slash Nerdist and get that free trial. This episode is Buzz Aldrin. And... Besides just having on an astronaut who is an American hero, who is actually... I'm going to say a human hero. I don't even have to make it about a nationality. He is a, a hero to humanity. The man has walked on the surface of the moon for reals. But um, one of the best things about the, the couple things that we've done with Buzz, we had him on the TV show and having him on the podcast, is uh, he's, first of all, a, just a cool dude. And beyond that, uh, watching Matt Myra around Buzz, because Matt Myra is the biggest NASA nerd that you would ever come in contact with and watching him near Buzz and just seeing the joy in his eye it's just like every minute he's around Buzz it's it's like that second of opening a Christmas present in a kid's eyes uh, so this was uh, I think this is one of those ones where the guest Buzz was so uh, fascinating talking about 
you know, being in space and being on the moon and told these incredible stories that we actually don't talk a lot in this podcast, which is rare. It happens sometimes, but it is very rare that we are all just in awe. I, just like our mouths were agape the whole time listening to these stories. And Buzz was really open about stuff and struggles that he's had. And, and so it's really... To, to, to basically take a guy who is a hero and then and then talk to him on a very human level um, was uh, was amazing for all of us. So Buzz's latest book, Mission to Mars, My Vision for Space Exploration, is now available wherever books are. So grab it after exchanging money for it. Here you go, the Nerdist Podcast number 374 with Buzz Aldrin. And in the D&D campaign, there was much rejoicing. Now entering Nerdist.com. I believe there are two kinds of people in the world. People who would go into space if given the opportunity... And people who would be too freaked out to go out into space if given the opportunity. Well, I think you have to do it gradually. You don't just hop out of the dentist chair and go off. <laughs> okay, one o'clock dentist, three o'clock space. <laughs> this dentist chair really goes high. <laughs> How's the book tour been going? Very well. It kept me busy. Sure does. And uh, actually, my signature gets better. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, it, it sort of gets mechanical. Does it get more minimalistic as you go? Well, I, I I weakened this hand a little bit uh, in a zero gravity flight. Oh sure. Um, somebody down below decided to push off the bottom and it smacked me into the roof, and I could feel it immediately. This is on the vomit comet. Yeah. Whoa. I love it. <laughs> And, so and, did, and this is a more traumatic one on this this end. Uh, what was that? Well, I was recovering from uh, the back operation brought about by a vibrating machine, mm-hmm. which I thought was compact and we could put it in, in our apartment, but I'd already had uh, one back operation. And when you get on one of these platforms about like this, <clears throat> and you stand on it and turn the switch on. When you lean forward uh, on your toes, it goes up the flesh and it shakes <laughs> you up here. And you rock back on your heels, and guess what? Oh, your mouth. <laughs> well, yeah, because it goes up all the bones in oh, your wow. back. And if you've had a back operation, it's not too good a thing. To Was do. there any reason that you were doing this vibrating machine? Well, I I thought it would uh, uh, shake off some then pedaling or oh I know exactly what you're talking about what was that? that's the same kind of thing that Tom, Tom Lennon has, has one, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it it shakes you really hard yeah, supposedly it, Russian cosmonauts were trained I take my cell phone. did I take your cell phone that's it's quite possible no that's yours this goes out live that's mine <laughs> you don't have any more in your pocket. Surely there must be a third cell phone in those pockets. Oh, there is a third cell phone! 
Buzz Aldrin. Well, I took my uh, <laughs> business cards out of that. Sure. Pocket, so uh, you got actually. me this time. <laughs> All iPhones too. I'm impressed. So uh, uh, when you're not when you're not doing the book tour, what is your what does your life generally consist of? Do you get to rest at all? No. <laughs> I'm going from uh, a conference to a conference, and I'm <clears throat> gathering people with ideas. I've got two uh, sort of nonprofits. Uh, I had more, but I uh, managed to dispose of the education when I found out that a clever idea of getting companies <clears throat> that want employees in the future to begin to supply the curricula for them today so that they will evolve. Oh, that's cool. And uh, then I talked to a very smart guy who's working the education program in the state of Arizona now that he's retired from CEO of Intel. Uh -huh. Very smart guy. Mm -hmm. And he said, Buzz, it's not the curricula. It's the system. The system of the PTA, the state, the unions, and all of those things. And you have to really... Look at each location to try and figure out how to make the system work better. Yeah, there there are just lots of different study plans you can you can do. So I said, well, I'm not into that. So I think I'll slide aside now. For 20 years, I've been trying to evolve a lottery uh, when it looked like we might be able to put people in the cargo bay of the shuttle. There were some discussions oh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Um, how are we going to select these people? Somebody in the back of the room said, why don't you have a lottery? And I thought, wow, that's, you know, that gets a lot of people interested. Sure. And they put up some small investment that, that sort of helps pay for things. And then a few people are selected for progressive uh, activities and as you get the thing going you are advertising that which rides you're going to get what sure. does that do that advertises each one of those so if you negotiate they should give you those rides because you're helping them in their business and you're spreading the word around to lots of people it just takes a very clever marketer which I'm not <laughs> uh, and then I realized uh there is a clever marketer, and it's Richard Branson. <laughs> so I figured that sooner or later he was going to kind of <clears throat> take this over. And uh, and then uh, somebody came to me about being an ambassador for the uh, uh, fragrance and men's grooming stuff called Axe. Yep. It's a part of the bigger company, Unilever. Uh-huh. And so they set up an Axe Apollo Space Academy where in December they're going to make some final selections. <clears throat> but what they decided to do is to purchase 22 suborbital flights with this one company called uh, X-Core, and their spacecraft is Lynx. Very, very smart guy, heads it up. And I was kind of puzzled because the spacecraft that they have has a pilot, 
and one passenger. And even if they fly it four times a day, uh, how, how can you uh, have a business plan that's going to pay off yeah. when Branson has a comp complicated, expensive system of a big airplane and a rocket, but he takes uh, seven, six, seven passengers with big, big marketing, and of course he's got a lot of people signed up for it. So uh, I began inquiring a little bit more about this very smart guy who, who runs this company because I ran into him when he was part of a commission to study in uh, 2010 what we ought to be doing, well, 2009, what we ought to be doing in the future, and I submitted my, my thoughts that I thought uh, were pretty damn good, and I still think they are. You've got to <clears throat> make a few little changes. Um, so I began to learn through his test pilot and others that, that this is just a small stepping stone, this little spacecraft uh, that's going to teaches them how to turn around things. Uh, and and the, the next steps are progressive and get into taking one or two people into orbit. And now we're talking about not 100,000 that sort of is what he's charging. Branson's charging 200000 uh, But when you get into going to orbit, now you're in the five, ten, fifteen million dollar ticket. The the first uh, tourist, Dennis Tito, paid about fifteen million to a company that was brokering uh, sales of a Russian spacecraft. That you would have to go over and, le and learn all the systems for five or six months in Russia. Then you get launched on a Russian rocket and a Soyuz. You go up to the space station and spend about eight days uh, and then come back again and land in uh, Kazakhstan. Um, but an American company would market uh, these rides. Is it worth it? Is it worth it for $15 million? To go suborbital? Oh, you mean to get yeah. into yeah. orbit? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know what? The United States has to pay Russia right now mm -hmm. for one NASA seat or one seat of somebody else? What is it? $65 million. <laughs> Now, that's because uh, supply and demand. Sure. Okay? <laughs> Russia is the only supplier. Because we retired the orbiter, shuttle orbiter, without a replacement. It was part of the program that was supposed to uh, come up with a, we're supposed to retire the, well, finish the space station. This is President Bush's program. Finish the space station, retire the orbiter at the end of 2010. Exactly what the accident board said. This is not a safe machine. You keep flying it, but retire it at 20, the end of 2010. So uh, the plan that uh, was put forth by <clears throat> the administrator of NASA uh, was to <clears throat> finish the space station, retire the orbiter, build spacecraft that could get you to the moon by 2020. And most of us agreed, gee, if this 
can get us at it just going up and down, up and down with a shuttle, we'll get a lot more people enthused about the exploration. Well, so we've been to the moon before, but at least we're, we're getting out of low Earth orbit. Well, the implementation of that program just was very poor. It wasn't really President Bush's. It was the administrator at NASA and those who were um, instructing him what to do and the Congress kind of saying crossways things. So we ended up uh, without a replacement for the shuttle and it was called the gap and the gap began to grow and grow and grow because after 2010 this is what Obama inherited he actually flew twice after uh, the end of 2010 he sort of cleaned up the the crew vehicle that was going to go on a solid rocket that went uh, very bad schedule overpriced and without that the big rocket, and if you don't have the big rocket, you cancel the lander. So the only thing we had left coming out of uh, the Bush administration and to Obama was one spacecraft, really without a launch vehicle and without a mission. So um, that's why he set up a commission. What are we going to do in the future? And, uh, of course, I had pretty good ideas as to what we should do. And the foremost was not waste money on sending NASA astronauts back to the moon. Now, there are a lot of people, a lot of uh, lunar soil people and uh, resources and this that uh, are impatient to get back to the moon. And they say, that's all we can afford. Well... If you go back to the moon, this commission that was put together said at the present funding, we couldn't get to the moon until 2030. And of course, the Russians would beat us there. And the commission said we wouldn't even have a lander. So it was not judged an affordable thing to do to go back to the moon. Hopefully, we'll get out of this uh, sequestration and this economic downturn and begin to build the things that are really meaningful. It's kind of interesting when you say, well, we've been to the moon, and most people say that, and they just mean, we as a culture have been to the moon, but you literally have been to the it is It is an actual we when you say it. Well, but there were all these people working on this project, and when it was fulfilled, they got many new answers about what the moon is about. And frankly, between then and now, we've been developing some very sophisticated Mars robots. Okay? Now, the Mars robots get instructions once a day of what they're going to do in the next day. And they're very conservative. If anything goes wrong, if it approaches falling off a cliff, it stops doing something, and people are going to send other instructions. Okay, what does that really mean? Well, the program manager of these two spacecraft on opposite sides of Mars, Spirit and Opportunity, they were supposed to last 90 days, 
and one of them got stuck at the end of five years and the other one is still working. So he said, now what those two have done on opposite side, moving around in five years could have been done in one week if we had human intelligence in Mars orbit instructing them in less than a second time delay. That's the power of getting intelligence close to what you're controlling robotically. And that's why even from the Earth to do science robotics at the moon, it would be better off if we could get closer over to Martian orbit. It can, to, can, closer to, to the, the lunar moon. Orbit, yeah. To the lunar orbit. Yeah. Can, yeah. can anyone just... Uh, are we at the point yet where if we had the technology, any average person could just go into orbit? Or is there... Is there still like you know three, four, five, six months of training that would be that you'd have to undertake? Um, well, in the three-man Soyuz, you got to learn the Russian language so you can speak to people. <laughs> so you have to pay fifteen and million dollars. You got to know Russian. what to do in certain emergencies, and they feel it's taken six months being over there to learn those things. Wow. wow. We don't feel that it really takes uh, all that long. Um, it, it depends on who the person is. If the person is a pilot, like the first person we took in the, sh- in the shuttle was Senator Garn, who was the head of appropriations, that's a good thing to do. You'd <laughs> like to have the guy know what what it is you're doing. Well, he had 10,000 hours flying airplanes. But he was sick most of the time he was up there mm-hmm. in the shuttle for most of his flight. And then we took uh, then Congressman, uh, who was in appropriations, uh, Bill Nelson from Florida. I'm not sure how far this goes out, but but anyway, he was told by the crew, now just sit back there, don't touch anything. (laughs) (laughs) uh, But he's now a senator, and the person who commanded the flight that Congressman uh, Nelson was with uh, was under consideration for the next administrator of NASA. Oh, wow. It wasn't the president's choice. The president had somebody who was a two-star general in the Air Force, and I met him and talked to him. But when the Senate confirmation came, they turned him down, and they accepted the person who was the commander of Bill Nelson's flight in the shuttle. Has this all... You know how intertwined these things are and, and political influence. Did you That's, understand all this when you were... No, we, we really didn't. Everyone was pretty much uh, on board. Everyone wanted uh, jobs to companies in their district back in the Apollo days. But it was so important what they had done. It was quite logical that uh, that uh, 
McDonald was going to build the uh, Mercury capsule. They had some degree of uh, competition. And then McDonald joined Douglas, and to build the two-man, it was stretching the one-man into the Gemini program. So it was pretty clear who was going to do that. Then Apollo, uh, that was a bit competitive, but uh, North American Rockwell won the command module, and Grumman won the contract for the, the lander. And there wasn't a whole lot of arguing, and of course, how they were going to get there depended upon the rocket. Now, the rocket uh, was a, a dream of Werner von Braun with the knowledge that he had of the V-2 rockets, and we got him over on our side, and uh, he worked with the Army ballistic missile people and then became part of the center in uh, Huntsville, Alabama. And there's absolutely no doubt that his team put together a magnificent rocket called the Saturn V. And while they're doing that, uh, Russians put up a dog, we put up a monkey, we brought the monkey back. We're they left the, the food dog. Chain. They left the dog up there. Oh, uh, Leica, Leica, Leica. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then it was quite clear that they were going to be able to fly somebody pretty soon. This is after uh, Sputnik, of course, that surprised quite a few people. And sure enough, Yuri Gagarin, the the ideal farmer boy, uh, who turned into a jet pilot, he was the ideal person for them to put into one orbit of the Earth. And uh, the best that we could do <clears throat> was with a redstone that was just a suborbital flight with uh, Alan Shepard. So Gagarin was the 12th of April, 61. The 5th of May was Alan Shepard, less than a month. Less than a month after that, the 25th, 20th, 25th of May, President Kennedy said, I believe this nation should commit itself within the decade to landing a man on the moon and bringing him back safely. Now, we didn't really know how to get there. We're building a big rocket. We had companies that were going to build a spacecraft. We were working with Mercury and, uh, and, and Gemini, and I'm hanging out at West Point, I mean, at MIT, getting my doctor's degree. Very wise decision. I knew how to intercept airplanes. So the step-by-step -step training to be able to do that, if you apply that, to space, the step-by-step -step ends you up with something in orbit, uh, you're behind him and chasing him, and you get that way by step-by-step -step, uh, corrections. But now you're uh, catching up with him, now you need to intercept and, uh, and make a join up. That is the part that I uh, became very familiar with, because <laughs> uh, it was part of my thesis. 
Well, this was different than the way that NASA and McDonnell Douglas were going to join the spacecraft. So there was a little bit of a competition, and some other people at NASA kind of saw the merits in what I was doing and the steps leading up to that. So my way of doing rendezvous is what we did in the Gemini program, two, two people. It had additional inputs, of course, to get it where it should be, but it worked so well. In the event certain failures happen, you could continue with what information you had left. And it worked so well in Gemini that it was essentially the basis for uh, rendezvous in Apollo. Now, uh, von Braun, rocket maker, decided he would uh, design the spacecraft that should go on this big rocket. And it was going to do everything. One spacecraft would be launched with a rocket in Earth orbit, then it would leave Earth orbit, get to the moon, be in lunar orbit. Then it would slow down, make a landing, maybe leave some things on the moon, and go back up into orbit lunar orbit, leave there, come back to the Earth, and land in an ocean. Now, when I had my intern do a little research, he drew a picture of it, and it was about this high, and the actual lunar module that we used was about this high. A big difference. In order to do it Dr. Von Braun's way, to lift it off, all of this would have taken not the Saturn V, but a Nova rocket with nine engines instead of five. That wouldn't have been ready until into the 1970s. So it wasn't going to satisfy uh, the president's uh, commitment. So he had to use two Saturn Vs, put the big propulsion system to get it away from the Earth, and then put the big spacecraft on this one. And they'd have to join up in Earth orbit, and it became known as Earth Orbit Rendezvous. Okay, another clever engineer from one of the centers who had analyzed this and broke, broke it down into pieces, he said, we need to look at segments of going to the moon. First place, you need a small little capsule that can abort from the rocket uh, and uh, can go to the moon and come back, but it needs a service module. So we'll launch that with the service module. It'll go to the moon. When it comes back, the service module will burn up in the atmosphere and the command module will land. Now, when you get to the moon, you got to land. So what you need there is a lander, and something to get you back up into orbit. And, and those have to be very lightweight. And if you get all four of those down in weight, guess what? One Saturn V will do it. But it requires lunar orbit rendezvous. And, of course, the people in favor of Von Braun's way, they said, well, the real discussion is between Earth orbit rendezvous, which is much, much safer than rendezvous way out there at the moon. Therefore, our system is better. They kind of glossed over the fact that we had to use two 
Saturn V's to do it their way, and we only needed one, and that's what we did. So you find that there are uh, people who begin to sort of get out of their business. If you're in the rocket business, don't start designing spacecraft. <laughs> and we're sort of <laughs> in that advice. business right now uh, with a, uh, uh, a very fortunate, very wealthy uh, owner of SpaceX who's a rocket designer. Yeah. But he's also designing the spacecraft. Uh, and he's not only doing that, uh, he's carrying cargo to the space station, so he's succeeded in gathering people together and having uh, some good fortune. And several of the successful ones had little things that went wrong that could have scratched the whole thing. I'm told by my son, mm -hmm. who works for a Boeing and Lockheed joint venture called United Launch Alliance. Uh, with big companies that, that uh, have big overhead and more expensive rockets than SpaceX does. But SpaceX wants to take its expertise and not listen to anybody else, especially me, uh, about how to get to Mars, and he's going to go to Mars himself and then lift off and, and come back. And it's like one company and a, and a rather egotistical director of that one company trying to run the whole space program for the world. It's not international, it's not national, it's one company taking uh, somebody there. And we went over to talk to him and explain my uh, discovery of cycling orbits and how we can build things up gradually. We can get to a moon around Mars, and from that, we can, less than a site, we can build the base on Mars before anyone goes down there. And in order to really know how to do that, we will build the base for the other international countries on the moon. That's our contribution, bringing things. We won't land them there. And how will we learn how to do that? The big island of Hawaii is where we will practice. We will position these prototypes and then through a satellite, we'll bring them together. And when it doesn't work, we'll go out there and fix it and it'll work the next time. We'll do this over and over again so that when we do it at the moon from a remote station, on the far side of the moon, not on the surface, but 50,000 miles away. It's a stable point of gravity. There's one on the Earth side, uh, it's called L1, and we can use it to control things on the front side of the moon, and the one on the back controls things on the back side, and that's where we want to land, because that's where these dark craters, dark areas shadowed uh, of craters that are because they're down low they're always in shadow and it gets extremely cold and so when things crash into the moon asteroids comets whatever they are they contain a certain amount of water or ice 
And when they crash into those areas, the ice is preserved. It doesn't go up. So we've discovered that, and that can be a source of water to support people on the surface, but deemed much more important is to get that water in the sun uh, in, in uh, orbit, and now the sun will separate it into hydrogen and oxygen, and that is rocket fuel. So we now have a refueling base in the vicinity of the moon to be able to commercially be developed and commercially sold to the different nations that want to use that, including ourselves. So we're developing the things like, how do you build a base on the moon? How do you get the refueling? And we do these uh, by commercial, and we don't need to land NASA astronauts to do any of that. That is very expensive, as we found out. You need big rockets, you need big landers, then you have to supply people. So it's a distraction to go back to the moon with humans when robots will do just as well and to take NASA astronauts and do 50 years after we did it before. We need to take those resources and gradually build outward the capability to go to the moon of Mars. And now, when we occupy that, which is easier to get to and come back, we build the base on the surface of Mars. And it's complete, finished. may take four or six years to, to do that. But then, having built that base by people that went to the moon of Mars and then came back, what I discovered in 1985 is called cycling orbits. The early ones are called Aldrin orbits. Within one, one cycle where the Earth approaches Mars from inside and it's the optimum time to travel oh, to be, uh -huh. between Earth and that occurs every 26 months. Two years and a little bit more. And Mars is going around once and a little bit more and the Earth going ahead is going around twice and catches up with, uh, with Mars. So every 26 months we can go from Earth to Mars and from Mars to Earth. The difficulty of coming from Mars to Earth is that it's very expensive to get the fuel there to be able oh, to bring the people back. back. Not only that, but when we go to Mars, we want to build up a sustainable number of people. And it is slow in being realized, but most people are realizing that if we send humans to the surface of Mars, it should be permanence. There's even a, a company in the Netherlands that, about that. Uh, Mars One One-Way Trips. Now, I've avoided the term one-way trips, I don't think the pilgrims got on the Mayflower uh, really calling themselves a one-way trip. Uh, they were coming over here not to wait around for the return trip at Plymouth Rock, but they came here to settle. 
And when we go to Mars, it should be to settle. The moon is someplace you can get to in three, four days. You can turn around and get back in three, four days. It's a very inhospitable place. 13, 14 days of sunlight. Sun rises and goes. That's because that's how long it takes the moon to go around the earth. Then it's got 14 days of darkness, and it gets very, very cold. One way. Not a good place to set up housekeeping. Let's just call it half a round trip. Call it half a round trip. A permanent vacation. That's a very specific kind of person that would just say, "Yeah, I'll just, I'll just go to, we'll just leave Earth behind and never come." I don't even know how most people would survive psychologically the trip. Mm-hmm. I mean, so when you're, when you, when you're on, I mean, you've probably answered these questions a million times in the past few decades, so I apologize, but. Um, when you're on your way to the moon, psychologically, how do you prepare for that? How do you not freak out? Because it's kind of a weird thing for a human being to not have the earth under his feet. Mm-hmm. True. Well, most of us that were on an Apollo mission flew previously in a Mercury or a Gemini, and we went into orbit for several number of days, and then we were going to come back. This just goes a little bit further, but it's going to the moon. And the first flight to the moon just orbited it for um, 20 hours, 10, 10 orbits, and then they came back. But it was a, a, a pace-setting uh, achievement to be able to get there. Uh, and, of course, it's remembered at the end of 1968 around Christmas time that the crew read from Genesis and it was extremely moving here. Next thing we needed to do is to develop the lander. So we developed the lander in Earth orbit and then we took the lander and flew it to the moon and addressed rehearsal. Now, Neil Armstrong and I were on the backup crew of that first flight, Apollo 8, so there was already a crew assigned to 9 and 10. So if we were in the backup crew on that, we would be on the prime crew of the third mission from that, Apollo 11. And if everything worked out right, we would be given the try, the attempt to make a successful landing. It wasn't guaranteed, and clearly it was the most difficult thing that had ever been tried by any spacecraft. To be in orbit and then to slow down, the engine quit, you're going to hit. But the engine is slowing you down and eventually it's going to control you to a controlled descent, in our case with uh, 15 seconds of fuel left. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, when you're when you go off on this mission, do you say to yourself, well, I might never come home, or do you just not think about it? Do you just, are you, do you go, you know what, we've, we've worked out the science as best we can, and it'll probably be okay? Well, we didn't go out and buy insurance policies. <laughs> I, I think the rates would have been pretty high, but, but, <laughs> no, but no. I think somebody, somebody did. Uh, fortunately, we didn't have to um, have families cash in on, uh, yeah. on those. Uh, I think we all 
agreed in the program that the way it was put together, the chances of returning safely were on the order of 95%. Now, that, that's an acceptable when you have such a significant mission. Now, does that mean that you will land and come back? No, you. a lot of things can go wrong while you're going there that won't allow you to land, but you'll still be able to get back. So we, the three of us, just sort of estimated what our chances were to be able to launch and land successfully and come back. Well, we figured it was about 60%. That in 40% of the cases, we'd have to uh, change the mission, abort here or there, but we'd make it safely back. And out of seven missions that attempted to land, six of them were successful, and, and that's pretty close to uh, 60%. I mean, it's just a wild guess on our part, but that's, that's the sense of success, I think, that indicates uh, what the crew felt like before going on the first landing. To be given the chance to land, and uh, maybe they could, maybe they couldn't. But coming back safely, you might just as well plan on that. If you don't, you're not gonna survive very long until you run out of oxygen. And uh, uh, th that's not too bad a way to pass away, just uh, asphyxiated, because you don't have oxygen anymore. How did you... F how did, how were you changed when you came? I mean, you had to have come back and felt you must have seen the earth differently. You must have seen regular life differently. How did you feel like the experience changed you when you when you got back? Well, certainly uh, we were involved in uh, parades. Oh yeah, and you're state so dinners and all that. And uh, then they came to the three of us and said, "Well, we've got this." round-the-world trip planned, 25, 26 different countries, and it's going to take uh, 40, 45 days to do this. Now, you don't have to go if you don't want to. Can you imagine anybody having <laughs> gone to the moon and then getting the Presidential Medal of Freedom and then saying to NASA planning, and you know, the president planned this round the world sure. trip, and then saying, uh, well, you know, I, I just don't think I'm up to it. <laughs> there was absolutely no choice. We were going whether we liked it or not. Um, and it was, it was a bit stressful. Now you come back from that, and you uh, have dinner in the White House, and the president uh, says, well, I think I know what Mike Collins wants to do because he's talked to the Secretary of State, Secretary Rogers, and, uh, and they've got a position. <clears throat> and uh, Neil, what would you like to do? And Neil says, well, I'd like to stay with NASA and work in the aeronautics department. Uh, he was uh, a test pilot of airplanes having flown the X-15, clearly oriented toward airplanes. Sure, I'd been in combat, shot down a couple of airplanes, but my emphasis at MIT was doing things in space. And uh, 
I, I felt that staying with NASA, there were just not that that kind of opportunities. So I said, uh, I'd just as soon go back to the military service that I came from and was still in the Air Force. Uh, graduated from West Point, and uh, at this point I was a, uh, a colonel and had about uh, 18, 19 years of service and uh, could retire at 20 years. But in my background, I had been at the Air Force Academy in 1955 when it first opened up and the cadets came in and the dean of faculty had an aide, that was me. <laughs> so I was there and saw the Air Force Academy open up and, and then they sort of eased the dean out for some reason. So I flew with the upperclassmen who... You know, when you bring the first class in, there is no upperclassmen. Oh, right. So they took second lieutenants who had <laughs> just gone themselves. through pilot training, who were fighter pilots, single engine, but they were second lieutenants. And they said, now, if you guys will give us two years of your career and be upperclassmen again, because many of them had gone to a service academy, we'll let you fly F-86 Sabre jets uh, in, in Denver pretty high altitude, pretty short runway. So when when the dean left, I um, uh, was an instructor for those guys, uh, upperclassmen, until I sort of negotiated a very plush assignment, the best overseas assignment, flying the best aircraft that the Air Force had, which was a supersonic F-100 in Germany. Is that your favorite? No, the Sabre jet in Korea was a favorite. It was just uh, a much better behaved uh, airplane. It didn't go as fast, uh, but but it also uh, uh, turned a lot sharper. And uh, you really had to uh, one pass and haul ass <laughs> is what you do with the F-100. You, you come in, make a pass on somebody or something, and then you get get out of there with afterburner as fast as you can. Well, I, I think before, so what, I, what I'm trying to get at is, is what does it do to your personality? I mean, obviously you come back from the moon and, and you're certainly, everyone knows who yeah. you are and you're doing these parades and everything, but how does it change your outlook uh, on life? I mean, do you, do you not get upset about stupid things anymore? Do you appreciate life in a different way? Do you feel like, well, I've done this, I could probably do anything. Like, do you feel... How does it change you emotionally? Well, uh, later flights were going on and, until 1972, the end of 1972. And I wasn't assigned to the Air Force Academy, unfortunately. One of the characteristics of my entering the astronaut program is that I had chosen not to be trained as a test pilot. I had put more emphasis on understanding fighters and what that could do, and then writing my doctoral thesis at MIT on joining spacecraft together. So I was a spaceman. Neil was an airplane man. Uh, but where did they send me? Not to the Air Force Command to become commandant of cadets, which I would have loved to be, but to be commandant of 
the test pilot school. Not exactly what I wanted to do, but I did the best I could until it became clear that this was not leading to a good, rejuvenated Air Force career. So now I retired, and now things are not going well. I don't know for sure what to do uh, in the Air Force. They're not emphasizing space. We've uh, begun to wind down the Apollo program. The guys are going up uh, in the Skylab uh, for 28, 56, and 80 days, and then we do a joint mission with the Russians. <clears throat> All the time, we're beginning to build this shuttle. It's a big machine. It really wasn't what was supposed to follow Apollo, but that's kind of another story that didn't work out. And instead, we built the shuttle system with solid rockets and a big tank. Um, a lot of us didn't really think that that was the optimum design, but, but who are we to say? It didn't live up to expectations. It was big crew and cargo together. Supposed to fly 40, maybe 50 flights a year. Best we ever did was nine. Mostly it was six. It wasn't safe. We killed two crews of seven each. And it was not something that you could fly quite regularly. And it, because of that, it turned out to be quite expensive. Sure, we built a space station by bringing things up with the cargo bay. But the space station, as marvelous a technical achievement it is, hadn't, served, hadn't solved cancer, hasn't done other things that we wildly thought we would be able to do in the floating microgravity. It's there, but it tests crews and their uh, ability to withstand times and space. So as a biomedical uh, examination. It's uh, been quite good uh, testing endurance of people, endurance of, of equipment, and of course doing some experiments. What experiments? Well, I can't recall the really big ones that have made a big difference uh, in, in our lives down here. Um, Velcro. Now, Velcro... <laughs> was something that was adapted and find, found to be very convenient. Uh, tang, it was just a mixture of orange juice. Uh, <laughs> tef tang. Teflon, it was pretty good for frying Pens that ride upside down. I have a space pen. I have a Fisher space pen. Well, it, uh, it just pressurized uh, ink, ink cartridge. <laughs> you must have questions. Matt Meyer is the biggest uh, NASA. I'm just, like, I'm just listening. It's a lot of fun to listen. Uh, so what did you... So. The how long you were at the Test Pilot Academy until, what, like 77? No, I was like. there a year, and I retired. And uh, I wrote uh, a book, an autobiography. I maybe started it while I was still there. Uh, and it wasn't called Journey to the Moon. It was called Return to Earth because I could clearly see that that was the biggest challenge to me as an individual, writing an autobiography. It was coming back from having done that and now seeing domestically my, uh, my family life coming apart. 
uh, I sought psychiatric help. I became a member of the National Association for Mental Health, giving talks to different chapters. Not exactly what I had in mind as a youngster to be a spokesman for mental health. Uh, they decided to make a, uh, a movie out of my first autobiography, Return to Earth, where I talked about coming back and having these difficulties uh, and being made chairman for mental health. So they put that into a movie, uh, Cliff Robertson playing my part and um, Stephanie Powers, the diversion divorcee in New York and, uh, and other people playing my family. Uh, so things were rather disrupted. But when Cliff came down to see me to find out who is this guy, I was in my first rehab for alcoholism, uh, having kind of consulted a number of people. And it wasn't the, the, the most immediate solution to quitting drinking. It, it took a couple of years. Uh, but now I have 34 years of sobriety, and uh, I'm beginning to get my life back together again and become a very functional uh, person thinking of the future, because that's what I've been trained to do, thinking of mission planning for the future. Uh, I'm not immune from uh, funks or uh, discouragement for a period of time, maybe uh, a week, two weeks, maybe a day or two. Uh, those sort of things are part of your makeup. How do I know that? Because my grandfather on my mother's side committed suicide. My mother did commit suicide a year before I went to the moon. And some uh, uh, nieces uh, on my uncle's side also committed suicide, and I inherited those genes, and so have other uh, people in in my family. But was there they, less focus on? There was probably less focus on mental health at that time. Was it like I would imagine yeah. people didn't want to talk about it, or they thought, "Oh, if you seek out help, you're broken, or you can't." Like now, it's very accepted where people go get help, get therapy. Yeah. It's okay. Well, that, that's why the reaction to my autobiography of uh, uh, Return to Earth was kind of surprising to people. It really wasn't to me because I felt I needed to, to tell that story and not sweep it underneath the, the rug. But guess into the future how things might work out. And they didn't work out quite the way I thought. I became an alcoholic. <laughs> well, I can imagine. I mean, or I just I can guess actually that especially at that time you come back from the moon or any great achievement. If you you know if you climb a giant mountain or and then it's you know it's the culmination of so much work and then then it's over. Yeah. It's like oh what a, and and, oh, and what is yeah. what is your life? Uh, well, you went to the moon and then you became an alcoholic and then we forgot about him. Not me. <laughs> I knew enough to get involved in the things that I felt would move the program beyond uh, the space shuttle and uh, the space station. I had different designs for uh, 
space stations that I uh, tried out on people. Uh, Buckminster Fuller was quite an inspiration with his... uh, I had a lot of toothpicks and glue guns putting things together, yeah. Uh, uh, so, So I immerse myself in things like what might uh, future landers be like going to the moon and we were beginning to think about taking ordinary people into space so that's where I got the idea of a lottery uh, and and other education things Uh, but then I started looking at well how can we come up with a better way of going between the earth and the moon and back and back and back? Can we have something that continually does that? Uh, well, in order to, basically, in order to, you, you leave earth, you cycle around the moon, you come back. When you go back out again, the moon isn't there. It's over here. So you go out further, you come back. Next time you go out, the moon's over here. The third time, one month later, it's back here. So you go circle around it again. And there's several combinations. If you can encounter the moon and it'll turn your outward velocity into inward, maybe you can go out and then you come by and the moon takes your inward velocity and turns it back out again. Do you think people... Do I know whether that works? Not for sure, but I suspect it might. Uh, That didn't turn out to be too attractive to NASA because it was good for tourism and NASA was not ready to send people skim by the front side and the back side. And, And the Russians have been thinking about it, but they haven't employed that yet. But because that wasn't received that well... It was suggested by a former administrator at NASA. Buzz, why don't... Well, he was the administrator at NASA when we went to the moon. He said, Buzz, why don't you uh, look at these cycling orbits between Earth and Mars? So I got out to the back of an envelope and a couple of other things and uh, trusted the seat of my pants, and uh, I'd learned enough about approximations, and I thought, well, now, if you do that, and lo and behold, it worked. You could depart Earth five months later, you swing by Mars, and then total of 21 months later, you come by the Earth again, just the right speed, right angle, and it keeps doing that. Beautiful, brilliant. <laughs> Nobody thought of that. Uh, now he, the, the administrator NASA, used it in his study for the future that came out in 1986. Since that time, do you think anyone in NASA has used cycling orbits as a basis for taking people from the Earth to Mars? It's kind of disappointing, but no, they haven't. Well, I worked with Purdue University, and we've refined these uh, considerably, so they're they're much more attractive uh, than my uh, original orbits. And there's no doubt in my mind that that's what we're going to do, despite the not-invented-here attitude of companies and governments. Uh, it's called NIH. If they didn't think of the idea, it can't be any good because they're supposed to be thinking <laughs> of these things. Well, we have a couple questions from Twitter for people who wanted to know. So just really 
fun specific stuff. This is from uh, Professor Abby. What did the outside of your spacesuit smell like? I've heard it smells burnt. When, when we got back in the spacecraft, on our flight, we were a little dusty. Not so much as on later flights. But there was dust that we tracked in, and despite vacuuming with the suit return uh, valve, uh, I lay down on the floor, and there was a fair amount of dust on the floor, tried to go to sleep. Uh, while I was there, I noticed something that shouldn't have been there. It was a broken circuit breaker. The, the tip end of it broke off. And that's what's used to push in and pull out and make the circuit work. So I was kind of interested in what circuit breaker it was. So I looked at the rows of circuit breaker, and here's this one broken off. The engine arm circuit breaker. <laughs> the one that's got to be in to light the descent engine, and then you pull it out. And when you get ready to leave, the moon, the ascent engine, you got to push that circuit breaker in. Otherwise, the ascent engine isn't going to light up. So it's a pretty crucial uh, discovery. Uh, but while they're laying on the floor, we got to uh, get a smell of what the dust was like. And, and it wasn't real characteristic. It was reinforced later uh, as, as being something like... Uh, uh, you sprinkle ashes on on the dust of a fireplace, mm -hmm. and you get that uh, burnt charcoal. Oh, right. Uh, uh, odor, and, and that's pretty much what it was. What did you guys when you're when you're heading back to Earth? Do, were you able to have any kind of normal conversation? Was everyone kind of silent, or were you just was it all work talk, or were you like was like it? Colin steal your razor? What happened? <laughs> uh, well, we were kind of wondering what's going to happen. Hopefully, we'll splash down okay. <laughs> and then we knew ahead of time that if we had been on the surface of the moon, some people uh, felt fairly strongly that that dust just might have germs in it or some properties sure. that could be advantageous to human beings back here. So we were contaminated. <laughs> so uh, when, when we landed in the water, the uh, uh, the UDT, the divers, uh, with their swim fins and everything, uh, put a float around it, they opened a hatch, and they threw in these suits for us to put on that covered over uh, what we had and had a little filter so when we got out into the life raft we were all bundled up in these uh, um, airtight suits sort of oh they have to shoot right now oh yeah oh go, go shoot Matt's gotta go shoot we're gonna wrap this up in a minute Matt's shooting a, a video for us um, so um, so we were in quarantine for what do people know? What kind of germs? How long should somebody be in quarantine? 
Uh, let's give them 21 days. That, that's it. So, <laughs> just a random days. guess. Yeah. That should be enough time that if that anything they brought be, back, yeah. it'll die by the time. <laughs> so 21 days later, we, uh, we got out of there, and shortly thereafter, uh, we flew from Houston to have a ticker tape parade in New York, visit the U.N., uh, and uh, then we get back in the airplane, and we go to Chicago and have lunch in Chicago with Mayor Daly, uh -huh. another ticker date parade. Now we have a little bit longer flight into Los Angeles uh, for a state dinner at the Century Plaza. And uh, there we're going to be presented with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So we're going to have to give a speech. So all the while I'm coming back, I'm consulting with a, with a friend of mine who was a broadcaster for ABC, uh, Jules Bergman. Don't know whether you remember. I don't think so. But he, he helped me put some notes together. And this was the most nervous thing I <laughs> think I ever did, is standing up there at the podium with the president and all these other people. Uh, and I'm sitting at the end, uh, kind of jotting down notes. <laughs> but that was the first of many of these round-the-world trips. Someone else wants to know, uh, do you watch sci-fi movies? And if so, which one's your favorite? Well, I, uh, I did appreciate the stories that Arthur Clarke had to uh, portray. Even before that, uh, Isaac Asimov and H.G. Uh, Wells. Mm -hmm. uh, matter of fact, when I was in eighth grade, I reviewed several science fiction stories for my English class. And the English teacher didn't think too much of science fiction, so I didn't get too good a grade on that. But it was, <laughs> it was fun reading uh, those stories. Now, later on, of course... Um, uh, I think even before uh, we went to the moon, uh, 2001 came out. I think it was 1968. And I wasn't sure I understood all the things near the end of it. Matter of fact, I, I fell asleep during the movie. <laughs> <clears throat> now, many, many years later, I began to appreciate just what a... Uh, uh, predictor of the future, uh, Arthur Clarke was. He wrote a very wonderful book. Uh, well, actually, the three of us wrote a book, and then he wrote the epilogue for it uh, when we came back from the moon. And uh, so as time went on, I had different opportunities to go on cruise ships and whatever. And so I, I vowed that in 2001... I was going to go and visit him in Sri Lanka for about a day before getting on a cruise ship, and uh, sure enough, I did it. We we became quite close friends. I never did go diving with him, but he claimed to have discovered some uh, treasure of gold somewhere, uh, and <laughs> he, he loved the Pacific. That's why he went on a trip to Australia, came back, and then he decided to live the rest of his life on Sri Lanka. Wow. Um, there's a, a lot of, you know, you told the story when you came on the TV show, but a, a lot of people are so fascinated, and I'm, as I'm sure you hear all the time, about you punching that guy in the face, uh, which you said on the show felt really pretty good. 
That was a split-second decision. <laughs> Probably I wouldn't do that if I had it to do over again. I'm not sure what I would have done, but the guy's calling me a liar and a cheat. Yeah, of course. Wants me to sign his Bible, whatever it is, whether I went to the moon or didn't go to the moon. I couldn't understand what he was going to do with all of this except uh, elevate himself sure. to some claim of look at what I've gotten from uh, these different people. And uh, I, I just wasn't will, willing, <laughs> interested in playing the game. <laughs> and uh, I tell you, when I, uh, when I hit him as weak uh, a punch as it was, he immediately cried out to his TV guys, did you get that? Did you get that? Oh. <laughs> so he wanted that on TV. And um, I I had to get the case dismissed of uh, battery uh, in Beverly Hills. But, but I had some friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stephen E. Yates wants to know, what was the most surprising aspect of the environment of the moon? It, uh, we, we had attempted to train under the conditions that we thought we might have. We went to uh, Hawaii, Iceland. Uh, we did survival training in a different place, Panama in the desert, uh, and, and attempted to uh, see what we could observe through the telescope under night conditions many different simulations of what it might be like to land, look out the window, and see something that nobody else had seen that close. And then up to the telescope, we could look back and, and see the Earth. We could see the Earth as we got closer and closer, uh, but we kind of lost interest in that one sure. <laughs> once we got close to the moon. Um, but then to to uh, look through the window and see Neil uh, kind of prancing around at one frame a second on the camera, <laughs> uh, picking up a, a sort of an emergency contingency sample in case we had to scurry up, get him back in and, and head back. Uh, before we filled the rock boxes, uh, which are pretty heavy, and uh, I got quite involved to to go around and sample, take pictures, and do that of what you guys. But we didn't want to get outside and then get back in in a hurry and not have some dust. So he did that, uh, but uh, we, we had a very sophisticated transportation device from up in the cabin down through the hatch down to the surface. It was called a pulley, <laughs> like a clothesline. <laughs> so the strap so went down, out there. And, and I hooked the camera on this and, and then transported the camera down for Neil to take pictures. That wasn't the real purpose, because later on, the rock boxes were pretty heavy, uh, even in uh, moon gravity, one-sixth. But we had to carry those rock boxes up with the same sophisticated transportation system because it's pretty hard going up the ladder carrying a, <laughs> a, a big rock, sure. a big box of uh, pressurized, closed, uh, containing rocks and sand and uh, dust. 
but I could see that it was pretty easy for, for him to move around. So when I got down there, sure enough, I'd been spacewalking in my first uh, mission, and uh, it was even easier to move around than, than I thought it might be. There was no concern about losing your balance. If you began to lean a little too far, you just push off with your foot and go up and then go down like that. And you do that here and, and you lean over and you got to skip pretty fast to keep from smacking the earth. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, did you, did you follow, uh, uh, Commander Hadfield and all of the... I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I think he uh, uh, must have gotten that from uh, from my doing a monologue with uh, 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 the rocket experience. No, no. That was... Uh, uh, the what? What do you think? Letterman. Oh, Letterman, yeah. No, it wasn't, wasn't Letterman. It was uh, Elton John's... Rocket Man. Rocket Man. Yes. And I did a monologue of Rocket Man. <laughs> you did? Uh, How did I not see that? Oh, for Letterman. Oh, because you did and, the Rocket and Man. And I began uh, doing some other things in public because it just seemed natural. I uh, played a cameo with John Travolta where I visited him in the plastic bubble. Yep. Uh, then The Simpsons. Simpsons, um, a huge yeah, episode. You may not remember Punky Brewster. <laughs> of course I remember Punky Brewster. <laughs> not too many people do. But, but I began to uh, en- enjoy the uh, interest that people had in the space program. And so I began to do these things uh, out in the public because they, the public, would uh, wonder... What did he do umpty up years ago? Yeah. And I wonder if he has any idea what the space program is doing now. And I wonder what he thinks we ought to do in the future. And and that serves me very well in identifying to people that I do have distinct ideas. I've given it a lot of thought. And, and uh, people will ask me questions about what I think we ought to do. And it gets better and better. And uh, now it's uh, getting a very crucial decision-making uh, as to whether we ought to do again what we did 50 years ago, and that's to send NASA astronauts back to the moon. That's not what I think at all. We can help other nations do that, but we can put our resources into gradual cycling orbits, building the base on the surface of Mars, Mm -hmm. and establishing permanence. And I think a president could make that declaration somewhere around 2020 at the election and on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of our landings Mm -hmm. on the moon for two decades to establish American-led international permanence on the planet Mars. And that proclamation, that commitment is going to be remembered for hundreds of thousands of years in the history of humanity on the Earth deciding to begin to populate, settle, and grow a settlement on another planet. That's a big deal. And I just... uh, feel so proud as to uh, uh, 
been around in the time period my mother was born, the Wright Brothers flew. Uh, I got a chance through education and being able to be at the moon, and now I'm given the opportunity with my experience and intellect to begin to plan how humanity should begin to occupy another planet. Who else can say they've been given that tremendous opportunity uh, during their lifetime? I, I think just you. And this is, <laughs> I mean, literally, I think maybe just you. Your book is uh, Mission to Mars, My Vision for Space Exploration. And you look great, by the way. I don't know what your health regimen is, but you look fantastic. Is it, it, I, I think I need to keep it a secret because you really don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you don't drink. That's good. That helps. That 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 helps you keep. That helps you keep young. And then uh, this has been this has been really fun. I really really appreciate. Well, I, you. I, I dive with whale sharks. Oh, that's great! Yeah. And I hitch a ride on the dorsal fin. <sighs> Not many people have done that. I want to make sure you saw his Snoop Dogg video. No, I didn't see the Snoop Dogg video. Funnier Day, we did a few years ago. All right, well, we'll put it up on the... Funnier Day, it's Buzz and Snoop Dogg making up his, of his rap song. Oh, that's fantastic. The Rocket Experience. All right. No, I, I haven't been slouched at other things. I, <laughs> I got on a yellow submarine, French, went down to see the Titanic, uh, looked around. Wow. And I went to the North Pole in a Russian nuclear icebreaker. Uh, I'm not going to climb Mount Everest. Uh, that's a little too strenuous. What do you but think? I'm standing by for somebody to give me a cushy ride to the South Pole. <laughs> and, and so far, it hadn't materialized. North Pole. No, okay, North Pole or Moon? What do you like? What do you? What, what, what's? What do you like better, North Pole or the Moon? <laughs> It was pretty noisy in an icebreaker, you know, as it sure. crunches through the ice and then backs up and charges sure. again. Um, it wasn't much of a hazard. There weren't too many crucial, crucial decisions. No, you're, you're, you're sort of along for the ride. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the pioneering spirit and opportunity of doing something uh, with the help uh, 250,000 miles away <laughs> of the guys in Houston who are miraculously reading all sorts of things that are in our spacecraft. They know exactly what's going on. And that's, that's just amazing progress. Well, maybe someone on the podcast audience can help you get a cushy ride to the South Pole. Send Buzz to the South Pole, the one place he hasn't been. Um, there are some guys who may be listening in. They're putting together Hummers, <laughs> driving Hummers with caterpillar treads. <laughs> we'll do it a little uh, we, bit they've at They've been time. Work, working on it for four or five years now. We'll send you to South America. We'll get you to the tip of South America. We'll pop you over to the South Pole. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you there a little bit at a time. Um, good to see you. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming on again. Thank you. Thanks, Buzz. My my pleasure. Beside uh, those look like pretty good cookies. You're, would you like a cookie now? You definitely deserve a cookie. You've earned a cookie. <laughs> Buzz Aldrin's going to enjoy a cookie. You guys enjoy your burrito. Do you realize the elevation of the South Pole? No. What is it? Anybody here have any idea? No. 9,000 feet. Above sea level? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. Now, how much of that do you think is ice? 9,000? 6,000 feet. So the, the, the Earth is only 3,000 feet. 
Sure. For, and all right, and this next six thousand is just ice. Jeez. Just ice. You're gonna get out when you go there. Or you're just gonna look at it. <laughs> uh, no, I'm gonna fly back. <laughs> you're gonna fly back. <laughs> I'm not gonna drive back. <laughs> I made him guarantee that right from the beginning. <laughs> Good to see you, man. Okay. Well, thank you a lot. Um, I don't know. I don't know when we started. Uh, Most people don't. No, I know. You have to see FBA two on Thirty Rock. You haven't seen that. Oh yeah, uh, that's freaking awesome. That's one that people stop him about the most now. The Snoop Dogg thing. Snoop Dogg is awesome. We've been playing it a lot at his book signings lately, and people are like, but but. Cursing at the moon with Tina Fey is a real <laughs> opportunity. Oh, cursing at the moon? Yeah. What did you say? I walked on your face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, someone someone on Twitter wanted to know if you really did shout at the moon every time you see. Uh, that was great. So now we start over, and this time for real. Yeah, yeah, that was just practice. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Enjoy your burrito. This episode of the Nerdist Podcast is brought to you by Hulu Plus. Don't forget to sign up for your free trial of Hulu Plus and start watching your favorite hit shows right now. Go to HuluPlus.com forward slash Nerdist, all lowercase, for your extended free trial. Again, HuluPlus.com forward slash Nerdist. Hey, listeners, it's Will Arnett. Our podcast, Smartless, has crossed a milestone that seemed unfathomable when we started nearly four years ago as we've just released our 200th episode. Join us as we welcome that dynamic duo of hilarity, Steve Martin and Martin Short. You've seen them on screen together in The Three Amigos, Father of the Bride 1 and 2, and most recently, and Only Murders in the Building. Both are comedic geniuses in their own right, but together they are always electric. And this episode of Smartless is no exception. I don't know if I've laughed more in a single episode than this one. We discuss their career arcs both separately and as a comedy team, how they met, who is more difficult to work with, and what motivates them today. Is Steve a better banjo player than Marty as a singer? Find out on this bicentennial episode of Smartless. Follow Smartless on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Smartless ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Plus, you get to hear Sean cry. What a loser! 